Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am very happy to announce that I have somehow blackmailed Eric Helms to come onto the podcast and be my Q&A whore in his own words. Um, <laughs> very similar to uh, a position that Mike has been playing. Um, I'm a bit of a playboy, I guess, um, <laughs> for, the, for the podcast. But um, I'm ex- incredibly excited about this because not only is it amazing to have had Mike, another doctor is now coming on board. Um, and I think the last time I was officially on the podcast was actually podcast 28. And now we're coming up close to episode 100. Um, that was back in December 2016, believe it or not. Um, that's what wow. I had down. Um, I think me and Eric talk enough to make us feel like we've actually had a podcast since then, but I'm not sure if we have. Um, so if people haven't seen that one, definitely check it out. Um, that was all about kind of updates to the natural bodybuilding recommendations, um, the great piece mm. that you wrote. And uh, I just wanted to ask kind of, has anything changed in that time? Kind of, I know you, you are a doctor now, so you've got your PhD. Um, anything else you kind of want to put out there to the audience? When, when are you now stepping on stage? Why hasn't that happened? <laughs> Yeah, the, the, whole, the whole doctorate thing got in the way of that. But I uh, first, let me just say thank you for having me back. Uh, I can't believe it's been so long. Uh, I'm guessing this is going to come out before the roundtable with uh, Menno and Mike, so that that's cool. So that for me, it's my, my my third time, and then there's exciting things to come for the rest of your audience. But um, yeah, so I'll be getting back on stage probably 2019 now that the doctorate's out of the way and I have the mental energy and I don't want to basically make both of those suck was kind of my thoughts before it's like well i can can do a contest prep well or i can try to do a doctorate well doing both at the same time is probably not going to be a smart idea um so yeah um yeah glad to be back on happy to to update anyone on any information that's probably too broad to do it without the q a format so I'm, i'm i'm thankful to have this and i think uh it's gonna be fun awesome well, we'll dive straight in to the questions. And first of all, I mean, it was an amazing response we got in our just our private little community, our Facebook group. Um, I think we've got just under 3,000 people in there. We've got over 100 likes on this single post that I put in there and over nearly 50 questions, actually, 50 unique questions. So it was incredible to see Sweet. that. Um, so a lot of people asked uh, the same sort of question, and I'm kind of summarizing it. In that, how do you program or look to progressively overload your bodybuilding clients? Um, and then obviously there's a lot of specifics we can delve into there, but I thought I'd start off broad, allow you to just kind of talk on that subject. Absolutely. And it's a good question. Um, and I'm sure there were some people asking from the perspective of how do you work with your clients and others to say, hey, how, how would you recommend me to someone reading your stuff? And I do think those answers differ a little bit. Um, and one thing I've realized I've gotten a little further into my career is I started as just an athlete and then I started and then I was a, a coach and now I've become a little more of what I would call like a science communicator, I guess, um, is that when you present information to your clients, uh, you could do something more in depth, more specific and with a lot more context than when you're presenting it to everyone. Um, and you can do the best you can in that latter scenario. You can talk about novices, you can talk about intermediates, you can talk about advanced, you can talk about how do you classify yourselves, but um, you, have to, you have to sacrifice some level of individuality um, when you are dealing with information that goes out to everyone. So uh, when I work with a client, I'll start with that. Um, the first thing I'm doing is looking at where they've been. So it's not just a matter of do this program and, uh, and that's what's optimal, you know, and I think, um, anyone who does that, no matter how well set up on, on proper principles and the the latest information a program is, it'll always be lackluster if it is not paying attention at all to uh, your individual changes over time. Um, and it can only be so good. So the first thing is I do, I look over a pretty complex intake form. Um, and that goes and, and they've reported basically how they've been training recently. Um, so I know what their current level of, of, of like volume threshold is, uh, I, even if it's way more than they need, for example, I know that they, they've at least adapted to that workload capacity. Um, I also know what their training age is. I, I can visually assess and go, wow, that person's actually pretty well developed or man, they're doing a whole lot, but they don't have much of a physique and that can give me an idea of whether they're way past what they need to be or not. 
I can see whether they're doing a ton of redundant exercises or not. Like if they're doing, you know, leg press, hack squat and lunges in the same session, I'm going, oh, okay, maybe we need to be a little more uh, discerning with our exercise selection. It tells me a whole bunch of things. And then from there, I shift them towards what I think will probably be in the realm of optimal for them at their training age, at their experience level, um, and based on some of the empirical data we have. And then it's a matter of adjusting that over time. And I would say probably half the time, uh, there are substantial changes to what I initially set a client up with down the line if I'm doing my job right. Um, so. So that, that's kind of, I think that's an important way to start it is that's the caveat, that's the disclaimer, is then I actually give some, some quantitative numbers. Like, so when I present information to everybody, uh, I use kind of the latest meta-analytic data. So your, your, your listeners probably know what a meta-analysis is, but real brief, essentially it's when you take all the studies on a given topic and then you take basically all the participants from all of them. So if you have 50 studies, there's 20 people in each, you're working with 1,000 people and you're reporting what was the best response on average for the group. That doesn't mean it's the best response for everybody. There's going to be people who are two to three standard deviations out from that mean, but a good two-thirds of people, you know this is going to be in the realm of optimal for them uh, within the confines of the study. So a lot of caveats. But what we know right now is that somewhere between training each muscle group two to three times per week and doing at least 10 sets per muscle group per week uh, in, the in a short-term you know, period, typically no longer than six months and no shorter than six weeks is the kind of study length we're looking at. Uh, that, that's where things fall. And we know that – and these are almost all studies on training to failure. And I don't think everyone should be trained to failure. It's just an exercise science to standardize the effort that each person's putting in. We have them trained to failure at a given load often as a, as a way to affect that. So that's kind of a big background caveat is that this two to three times per week frequency with 10 plus sets per body part being quote unquote optimal for hypertrophy is one, uh, only based on the fact that if you train everything to failure, uh, and then two, it's also based on the fact that the training age in most of these studies is just slightly above what we would consider beginner. Uh, so they might list trained, but oftentimes that's, you know, one to two years of training that's maybe not always that good. So we would probably classify them as people who weren't quite ready to get on stage. Like if they came to you and said, hey, I want to do a bodybuilding show, uh, you'd probably say, yeah, well, let's put another year under your belt of, of good hard training. Let, let's make some adjustments. So they're, they're trained. They're not novices. So I see that as kind of like a, a low level start with a overly high intensity program. It's the yeah. best way to, but that is basically where I start. So I'll set someone up with like an upper lower four day split, um, training each muscle group roughly with 10 sets spread out, spread out the, the movements. So, uh, you know, they'll have a, a squat pattern, a hip hinge, you know, an isolation movement for, for, for quads and hams and, and glutes, potentially some calves. Uh, and then I'll, I'll do, you know, another day for the upper body where they're doing horizontal press, vertical press, vertical pull, horizontal pull, and then isolations for, um, you know, their arms and potentially, you know, uh, some direct delt or, or trap work depending on, you know, their physique. And then I'll have, you know, that other day beside a different rep range. So it has some element of undulation. Maybe they're training heavy and light uh, is I think we have preliminary enough evidence right now to suggest that might be beneficial. At the very least, it will be uh, more fun probably. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we, there may be some differences in low load training and high load training. Maybe not. Uh, we have kind of some, some conflicting data there. But at this stage, it's probably a good idea to not just do always the 8 to 12 rep range. And I think certain exercises are better done heavy and lower lower rep and certain exercises better done than higher rep and lower load for, you know, joint issues, fatigue issues. If it's a big, big movement like a squat uh, or a deadlift, et cetera. Um, it doesn't always have to be an upper lower, uh, how they get that two to three times per week frequency, um, can be dictated by their schedule and their preferences, you know? So for example, in the muscle and strength pyramids, um, for the intermediate, uh, bodybuilding program, uh, there you can do an upper lower and then a legs push pull. So you can have your upper lower be your strength work and your legs push pull can be your more moderate and high rep range stuff that you focus on a smaller grouping of muscles. So you can get a little more volume per session with less fatigue. Um, and that's for someone who has the ability to train five days per week. You know, if you don't, uh, then, then the upper lower probably make more sense if you only do four. So I think if you know that's kind of your starting confines, then you look at that and interact it with your schedule and you can figure out what works best. Like if you really, really love to be in the gym 
six days a week. You could do legs push pull, legs push pull off. No big deal. So long as in the end you're getting those ten sets in. I mean, it's pretty short sessions, you know. Um, that, and that's kind of your home base to start. If you only have three days a week you could train because you work twelve-hour shifts on four days, it's probably going to be full body or like upper lower with high reps and then one full body day of just compounds, you know, so you, you could figure out how to make that work with a, a two to three times per week frequency. Um, and that is where you start, but that is very, 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 very importantly, probably not where you're going to end up from there. You have to track data. You have to see, am I making progress? Uh, and then the adjustments come based on whether you are or you aren't. Uh, and, and there's a lot that goes into that for sure. So that's probably, I think I'll, I'll stop monologuing there for now and then see if you have any follow-up questions on that. No, I think that's a great introduction because I think, well, the biggest takeaway I took from that is the fact that we have some like broad overarching kind of foundational principles as it were. And then the kind of specifics of that are really broad. Like you can do it in mm. so many different ways. You already talked about kind of undulations within there, talked about different frequencies within there. Um, and yeah, lots of that can apply. And I thought actually something that's very interesting is not often talked about is that the when we are talking about those 10 sets, they are taken to failure. Um, yeah. And I guess that would then dictate that potentially if you're using kind of the RPE scale or reps in reserve and you're starting out further away from failure, um, potentially, I don't know, would we need more volume there to make up for that slight intensity difference? And then so 10 sets really does sound a little bit more conservative. That's right. You know, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's tough to say because not only is that 10 sets not a ceiling, like if you look at the meta-analysis I'm talking about, it, it goes right. So less than five uh, is... Is, is less is less hypertrophy or a slower rate of hypertrophy than five to nine, uh, and then ten plus is more than five to nine and and less than five, um, and we just don't have enough data on very high vol or higher volumes than ten sets from muscle group to get a good meta analytic uh, outcome from that. So it may be that even training the failure, uh, you know, a higher number than ten is appropriate on average. Um, but, but like you said, when you're training to failure, uh, every unit of volume, every set that you're doing is, is a higher stress level. So that's going to affect fatigue management in a different way than if you were not. Um, and, you know, uh, I think if we're limiting fatigue, if we're limiting failure and if we are um, assuming that our, that our athlete is at a higher training age than the average person in a meta-analysis, it is probably a conservative place to start. And I don't think people should start necessarily higher than there, but I think um, they should be aware that that is, like you don't want to start like all the way at the max you can handle because then you have nowhere to go. Um, and, and sometimes, like I think I've talked about this before when, uh, when people have asked me about MRV and probably in, in inappropriate applications of MRV is that like if you have and, and Mike is just probably going to be like you're just representing it wrong but if here's like the bell curve uh, of, of, of hypertrophy right and if anyone is not looking I'm showing like a, a hill basically uh, and then if we have moving across that hill is this line that represents volume like a linear increase in volume eventually that hill peaks right so volume still going up but your rate of progress is not so that means let's say, let's say arbitrarily you are the person who gets a maximal response at 10 sets, right? So it means probably from 10 to 15, you're growing at the same rate, but you're just adding more hard sets that are going to potentially put you in the hole recovery-wise, take up more of your time without really help being helpful in any way, and risking injury. And then as you get to like say 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 and higher, you're actually slowing your rate of hypertrophy. And then after 20, you're actually potentially even getting to the point where you're not growing because you just can't recover from it and you're risking overtraining. It's probably higher than that, uh, but I'm just giving some arbitrary numbers out to give that example. So you don't actually want to be at 15. You know, you, you want to be closer to 10, so you have someone to work from. Um, but it, it's hopefully a way to get you in the ballpark of what, what is close to optimal. And that's really, really great because that's brought in someone's question um, in a really nice way in which I think the if we're talking about the 10 sets and using kind of some of that volume landmark kind of uh, terminology, that's like your maximal adaptive volume, I think Mike would call it, which is where on average we want to be training kind of the place at which we're doing enough to grow and adapt at the best rate. Um, and their basic question was, would we be better off um, doing, say, that maximum adaptive volume like over a number of weeks 
or would we be better off starting below it and then maybe moving like an overarching and overgoing it say towards your MRV if volume was equated would there be any difference between two individuals one person kind of ramping up sets one person just doing a, a straight number through their mesocycle that's a good question you know and I think the fundamental question here comes down to does overreaching result in better hypertrophy I, I think I think that's what what the crux of this question is 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 okay if there is this range of say 10 to 20 where you're actually getting a, a positive adaptation from it and then past that maybe you actually start to just maintain because the recovery load is so high I have heard it proposed that doing closer to that maximum recoverable level where you're actually not progressing you've ceased progressing um, any vis any visible way um, uh, then you would, uh, when you actually come back from that, you're going to make additional gains. There's going to be the supercompensation effect. And I think supercompensation is largely misunderstood. Um, all the things we have on tapering show that you're essentially just reducing the fatigue and being able to express the fitness that you do have there. I think the two-factor model, while, while it's still oversimplified in the way we respond to things, it is a useful construct to think about if we have like a hermetically sealed uh, environment where only, and only stresses you have in your life are exercise, uh, then yes, uh, exercise does two things. It makes you tired and it makes you more fit and one masks the other. So a taper, um, so if you're doing a whole lot of work and you're, you know, barely nudging up your fitness, you're not actually just barely nudging up your fitness. That's just all that you can express with the level of fatigue you're carrying. So when you drop the fatigue, you see what seems like this super compensatory effect of a large increase in fitness. Um, but I would say that is largely just to the, due to the dissipation of fatigue rather than some magic super compensation happening. Um, so the... I mean, there are some other stuff going on, like overshoot, but that, I don't think that's really like that. That's like fiber transitions. That, that has very little to do, in my opinion, uh, with hypertrophy. I don't think hypertrophy is something that's going to have these kind of late stage, like oh my god, and now you know, because I took a bunch of time off, I'm, I'm more powerful kind of thing. Um, so I would say overreaching for hypertrophy is not really that useful except for the fact that you don't quite know where you need to go sometimes and at an advanced level almost any progress uh is 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 the most progress you can make yeah you know what i'm saying so uh hard and like effective training for a, a bodybuilder who is who looks like a bodybuilder you've been in the gym for a while or at least for you maybe relative to where you started i would say if you're an intermediate or an advanced bodybuilder your training is going to be hard and that's not necessarily because you're overreaching it's just that to get any progress it's going to require a lot of work either um you know a moderate volume of work at a very high intensity uh, or a large volume of work at a more controlled intensity um, and i think there's some wiggle room there with how you want to play it so uh, hopefully that answers the question in that i don't necessarily think there's value in going far past the point where you're, you're getting a, uh, a useful stimulus from it. However, at a higher level, they're going to look quite similar. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to think about it is like the least you need to do to grow is close to the most you can do and actually recover from. So the way of transitioning is going to be really difficult anyway, and you're just going to have to work hard all the time. And um, some, I guess it's one of those things, it kind of sounds like it's not necessarily something you aim to do it's just something that is a consequence of continually training hard is you might end up getting there and then you have to do a deload or something along those lines absolutely i think you know the, the way i gauge progress is um and i think you recently put up a, a cool infographic about this like am i seeing an improvement in the 8 to 12 rep range or basically my performance the way i'm training for yeah. hypertrophy which will include a lot of that uh, and then am i seeing what i think are some visual improvements uh, and do I feel like I'm working hard and am I, am I decently recovered? Like all, all those factors come into it, but I definitely assess uh, performance in a low fatigue state to gauge, all right, have, have we been actually improving? Uh, and if we aren't and the person, and overall as, as a coach, I can, I can subjectively gauge that they are indeed recovering from their training effectively, it's not too much, then, and, and they haven't improved, that's when you have to add more volume. Mm -hmm. um, so. So I always struggle when people go, yeah, but what if you could be making gains even faster if you were doing more volume? And it's like, well, your volume is going to go up anyway, and you can't know whether you could have had more progress because you don't have a twin in a parallel universe who's doing more volume and gaining like 
slightly faster than you. You know, I think um, that kind of grass is greener mentality and the idea that I should always be doing, like I couldn't possibly be doing more. If I'm making gains now, maybe my, my gains could be better is what leads people to injury burnout, spinning their wheels mm-hmm. and uh, making less gains in the long run. So sure, you know, a single set program will make progress for you in your first six months of training. And it'll account for probably 50% of the progress you could make just because you're so responsive. Um, and so, yeah, you, you could argue that, yeah, you could be growing twice as much if you were doing like a couple days in the gym, not just one, doing three sets per, per, per exercise. Um, and it would still be way below your recovery capacities within after a few weeks of, of, of your body getting used to training. Um, but then all of a sudden, the amount you have to do to progress and the most you can do to make the most progress are way closer together. And so I think, I think that's an important thing to, to people to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know if it would be fair to say that there's a lot of kind of different methods to go about doing the same sort of thing. And if you achieve these overarching main principles that we know are required, like you talked about the frequency or not required, but recommended the mm-hmm. frequency, the amount yeah. of volume that kind of if you pick one that you can adhere to over time and consistently do that's probably you're getting like 90 percent of your bang for buck and you probably can never i think it's I, I see the same problems with the fact there's so many different variables that come in like your environment your stress levels how your sleep is at the period of time how good you've been with your nutrition what you've been doing so it's to actually assess a program not only does it need to be a long period of time that you've been doing it because muscle growth is slow but you have to remember there's so many other factors that could have played into what's working and why it's working absolutely i mean honestly um if if a general program that you follow even if it's perfectly designed that's not custom tailored to you um if if like me looking out on it knowing what the average response is and training and like training studies uh and having you know written like having a similar home base that all of my clients probably or most of my clients start from that i adjust from uh if let's say 60 or 70 percent of people make good progress on it that's a great program that means literally like out of a thousand people there's 200 to 300 people like that program is shit for me you know so uh, i just think i think people forget that a lot they like i had um i had someone who was confused on a recent instagram post i put because i have a higher upper body frequency than two to three times per week and and i had to slow them down and be like hey hey just because a meta-analysis is the average response that you should train things two to three times per week doesn't mean that out of those, you know, theoretical thousand people, there aren't literally hundreds who would be better served by a lower or higher frequency. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, um, I think people just, we want there to be a universal answer because they want to know how, how should I train? They simply want you to have this podcast, me to tell them and they're good for the next 30 years. Um, but that unfortunately that's not the reality and uh, you will have to tinker around and learn over time, uh, which is why there's value in experience. So no, hundred percent. I guess this is why the, the principles really matter, but each of those are then dependent on individualization. So you have to make and learn kind of your own body. And this is why you start off with that kind of template recommendation over time. You learn what, how you're responding. And it's funny, I'll have some clients that the amount of volume they need for their hamstrings to like get slight soreness would be barely anything. And for me, I need almost double or like mm-hmm. even me versus Pascal, like I'll get a like a, a huge pump and I'll start seeing performance decrements with half the number of sets for my chest that he he would need. And it's just that individual difference in our programming. And likewise, I think you spoke about it recently on uh, your 3DMJ podcast, which is great, by the way. Um, if people Thank don't you. realize you have that, who are listening, they should definitely head over. Um, but you talked about kind of you and Alberto need a relatively higher amount of volume um, versus Jeff, who can basically live off a, a, an old school bro split. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's, and that's something that, you know, when I hear someone who's been training for a couple of years, say something like that, I kind of do that whole, like, yeah, maybe that's true. Like I'm nice to them, but I I don't think that's the, like, I I don't think they can know that. Um, Like as an example, I, because I've always been kind of like interested in science, like uh, it's been a while that we've seen two times per week has been better than one times a week in, in training outcomes. But I was too rigid in my ways, and then I never tried doing things more than twice per week. And I also have had the confusing thing of seeing my legs grow quite fine if I just train them, you know. Um, And they've always been quite responsive, both in terms of strength development uh, and hypertrophy uh, relative to the rest of my body. 
And I got to this point where I was relatively unbalanced. I had big legs and not that, not, not very much upper body development. I had a good squat, a good deadlift, and a relatively just weak over body lifts, uh, upper body lifts overall. And I had tried quote unquote everything except simply training it more often. Uh, and it had been, like, I think, two to three years of having the same bench press and looking relatively the same upper body. Um, and something clicked for me and I went, well, maybe I could try training bench and upper body more than twice per week. And then the first time in three years from doing more frequency and more volume, I should point out, it's not just an increase in frequency. Uh, my bench went up and I started to look significantly better within weeks. Uh, and I had another stall and I tried again. I went to, to doing more bench and more body work. And it's been consistently um, an effective strategy for me. And it made me realize I was just under training my body for a long time. And doing higher volume than that of my lower body just seems to make me feel terrible. It doesn't really do a whole lot unless I really modulate it, like from more of like a powerlifting perspective to like practice the lifts. Um, and then likewise, Jeff has multiple times tried to do higher volumes. And like if he's in the off season, if he's relatively low stress, if he's not prepping, yeah, he, he's good with a, a two times per week body part split and, and uh, actually approaching the volume recommendations we recommended for like people starting out. Um, but he, he, he just doesn't need that much. And he, he generates a high response from every set he does and a high level of fatigue from every set he does. So for him, it just doesn't make sense. He's kind of like a hyper responder on both sides of the equation. Um, while I tend to not generate too much fatigue, but not generate too much growth response in my upper body. So I just have to do more. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've seen that uh, tons of times in individuals. And that's something you really can't know unless you're paying attention, being systematic, tracking, and have experience. And what I see a lot of the times is people might have one or two of those, but not all of them. I've tracked a lot, but I haven't tried it multiple times. So it's like, well, dude, you, that was like you were dieting once and not dieting. You don't, you don't know anything from that. You need more, more time in the same conditions. Or someone who's really, really experienced, but they've always just kind of trained by feel. Yeah. You know, and they like, I just get a good sense. This is what I want to do. It's like, no, that's what you want to do, but you don't actually know if that's what's best for you. It might be working and, and that's fine. But, but if you come to me and you tell me that you are having A, B, or C problem and you're, you're stalled or you're not progressed, and then I suggest some changes that are outside of what you want to do, well, then you need to decide whether or not you're working out for fun or whether you want to be a competitive bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. You yeah, know, I think so, yeah. That was just a, generally a great discussion. And I think it does take, it's taken me years and years and years to really realize what is necessarily helping me. And I think because as well, it changes over time, like what helped you, mm. what advanced you at the beginning isn't going to keep doing that when you go in future. And so I think a lot of, I think I see a lot of intermediates who then get like stumbled because they're like, why doesn't this still work? It works so well Absolutely. before. Um, so then that's when they need to like purchase the muscle and strength pyramids and think about things a bit deeper. And hopefully, well, anyone listening to this podcast is probably way way intermediate and hopefully onto that advanced level. So um, no, brilliant uh, answer to that question. I think we can probably move on to the next one. Otherwise, it will be our entire podcast on that one question, which wouldn't <laughs> be a bad thing. Um, so this might be a fairly related question. We might have already actually covered it. But uh, Matthias Benito asked, um, what are your thoughts on? And I think you actually covered this in your latest AO series um, mm. in terms of a 1.5 times frequency or a 2 times frequency, both equated volume um, do you think there'd be any difference appropriate for different in individuals? Yeah, you know, the, um, I think that it's interesting he said 1.5 because if you look at many of the bodybuilding icons in the last, I'm going to say 20 years, maybe 20, 25, 30 years um, at most. Since the late 80s, early 90s, I wouldn't go back any further than that because things start to change. Um, you don't see frequencies above two times per week. And more often you see frequencies around one times per week or slightly quicker than that. I think Dorian Yates had like a five day rotating split. If I recall correctly, I think uh, DC training is, is roughly the same. Um, a lot of the times it'll be like a, uh, a rotating upper body thing, upper, upper, lower th three times per week is like the, some of the fastest frequency you'll see. So a lot of times they fall in that 1.5 range. And I think, there's a reason for that, and that's because volume, intensity, and frequency are so interrelated, and that if you push one of those variables really far, it changes the it it, it reduces the constraints of what you can do in the others, and still still be effective. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the bodybuilding culture and mentality is such that it's almost non-negotiable to not have hard workouts, right? Um, whether you were like, like if you think about it all the way back when we we're talking about Mike Menser and, and, uh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, they were arguing, um, Arnold would have two a day sometimes and these very, very long workouts and doing a ton of volume and trains with a lot of intensity, I would say, because he's generating a ton of fatigue. On the other end, the original hit stuff, although it got pretty crazy eventually, um, if you look at like kind of the Dorian version of that or the original Mike Mentor stuff, not when it got like, you know, do one set every fortnight, <laughs> but when it was still semi-reasonable, it was training a, a, a set to absolute failure. Uh, and then they'd be like, well, how could you even do another one? Like I've actually tried to do another rep on deadlifts, failed mid-set, maybe even got four strokes, that kind of thing. Um, and... So both of those have that same cultural element of it's got to be hard. I'm, I have this borderline masochistic desire to, to put in a lot of work. Uh, and I think we can all relate to that. Mm -hmm. Now, so that means that that's going to have an influence on the way bodybuilders can perceive training to be optimal. Because if they have to do that, right, in more cases than not, then that limits the, what they can observe. Because they won't try certain things. One thing bodybuilders won't try is not that hard of training. You know, um, so I would say this, this relatively low frequency is an emergent property of training at a very high RPE. Um, because if you were to take everything to failure all the time and past failure sometimes and do intensity techniques. So basically if you max out volume and intensity, how high can frequency even go? Mm -hmm. Not that high. Uh, so I think if you're going into the gym and every time you go into the gym, you have to feel like you've really crushed yourself when you leave. Um, which you see across drug-free and, and, and not, 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 not drug-free bodybuilding. Like, you know, Doug Miller, the crush it. You know, yeah. he's, he's done a fantastic – like he'll do all the sets and all the intensity always to failure and then superset it. Uh, and he's absolutely not, not alone. That's a very common trait of bodybuilders. And I think that's a huge part of the reasons why they're successful too is being able to go there um, and being able to push themselves. Because uh, I do think, you know, volume and intensity are the main drivers. It's more just an issue of – could it be configured slightly better to maybe reduce fatigue, reduce injury risk, and hopefully get you growing a little bit better? Uh, and, and I think the answer is yes. I'm not saying Doug Miller's not training right. What I'm saying is, is that um, all the guys who are, who are recommending based on their personal experience uh, to train once to 1.5 times per week and maybe two times per week, that's because that's all they can do while maintaining that non-negotiable aspect of the way they train. However, because we know that volume seems to be the most closely associated variable with hypertrophy, getting work done, um, not necessarily the intensity of the set. Because remember that we have a meta-analysis showing that 10 sets is better than one and 10 sets is better than five to nine. And those sets are all to failure. So they're all actually with people in a lab, exercise scientists yelling at you and saying going to failure. Uh, so even then we see there's still a dose response to some degree with, with volume. So that means that if we are controlling intensity to some degree and stopping short of failure, different things happen. So there was a recent study that came out, we covered it in mass, uh, where they compared three by 10 at basically a 10 RPE to six by five at a five RPE on just one exercise, right? So it's the same volume, the same load on the bar, right? But the RPE, it's five versus 10. Now, I do think a five RPE it has its place sometimes in training, but that shouldn't be just what you do all the time. So this is more of just basically an instructive study versus a here's what you should do. But just doing three sets of 10 extended the period before you recovered your performance and you recovered muscle damage by 24 to 48 hours compared to doing the same volume and the same intensity. So failure has a large impact. Obviously, that would be a truncated you know, it wouldn't be as much if you're comparing like RPE seven to nine training versus 10, but it would still be less. And we have data on that as well, where stopping where you think you're at failure versus actually being pushed to failure results in less fatigue, but similar gains. And that's been repeated multiple times. And always we're seeing the same level of progress, but higher fatigue when you go to failure. I think it's been replicated about three to four times yeah. now. So that means that, that perhaps pushing everything to the absolute limit is, is not necessary. 
and it might be limiting the frequency we can do. And if we know volume is then also most closely associated with hypertrophy, now we can make some more objective decisions about how to organize training. All right, so we should limit fatigue uh, by, by RPE, you know, so keeping ourselves from failure, except when we think uh, it can be useful without having too much cost. So say like your last set for a muscle group on an isolation exercise, right? Or uh, during a period where you know you're gonna be trying to push very hard before a deload or um, you know, before a taper or something like that. It depends on the context, but in general, not like hitting failure on your first set of bench when you also have to do overhead press, tricep pushdowns and lateral raises in that same workout. Um, maybe you're hitting it on your, maybe your last set of overhead press or getting high RP in your last set of bench and then, you know, go to town on your tricep pushdowns and lateral raises because how much fatigue can you really generate with those movements anyway? Yeah. Um, doing that then opens up the door for training more frequently. And then that two to three times per week makes a lot more sense and you can do more volume per session. Yeah. And I think you end up getting a little more bang for your buck. And I'm not saying it's going to be a huge difference. I think if you're training 1.5 times a week with more intensity and more volume uh, compared to two times per week, it's going to be quite similar because uh, all these volume equated frequency studies are telling you with volume equated, you know, um, but I would say on net balance overall, if you can overcome some of those cultural needs uh, and, and focus a little more on, on doing something that's still hard, but makes more logical sense, you will see a positive outcome if you can get the buy-in. Because if you truly believe it won't work, then it's not going to work. And I think that's another reason why a lot of suboptimal programs are touted by many because they just don't like training with, yeah. with slightly higher volume, not absolutely balls to the wall every time with more frequency. They would prefer to do uh, the hardest they can every time they step in the gym. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, I think belief and, and enjoyment is important. That has a big role to play. Mm -hmm. No, I think that is really, really interesting and well explained in terms of just like, it's like kind of, if I'm imagining, uh, I guess quite a related analogy in that if you're doing a race and kind of you're starting a marathon, you go and sprint straight away, you're kind of like inducing a ton of fatigue and may well not be able to get the entire volume of the marathon done. Whereas if you kind of pace yourself, um, you'll actually finish. Um, maybe not quite not finishing and finishing, but maybe slightly better results. So no, excellent answer. Uh, really well explained, Eric. Um, so sure. next question is from Nicholas Luca Ricardia. <laughs> I kind of stopped uh, saying people's names because they're so difficult, some of them. Um, mm -hmm. But we'll go with it. Uh, so he's gone and said, I have gone from severely obese to a decent physique, but from what I understand, I would still have the fat cells ready to soak up excess calories, which make fat gain more easy for me. Is, is there any way of getting rid of fat cells permanently? Uh, he mentioned cool, cool sculpting. I, I haven't mm. actually heard of that. Uh, I'm glad you have. Um, and he just wondered, if, what does the research say? First off, excellent job. You know, um, someone overcoming obesity and actually not only that, but also then getting into physique development. Uh, it just speaks volumes to what you overcome. And a lot of people won't be able to relate to that. And well done. Um, now, our understanding of how fat cells change is incomplete. Um, it is certainly easier to gain them than lose them, but I'm not necessarily fully confident in the literature that says you don't lose any when you lose a lot of weight and maintain it off. Uh, I'm not saying it does happen or doesn't. I just don't think I'm not confident enough to say, well, sorry, buddy, it's there for life. Cool. Um, so take that as a, as a takeaway, but evolutionarily it does make sense for them to be hard to get rid of because we want to be prepared for that famine to come. And if we can easily fill up those, those fat stores, then we have tissue available for energy. Now that said, I really want you to start focusing on not a potential problem, but real world results. And it doesn't sound like you're someone who's at risk of relapse and getting obese again. If you've lost all this weight, you've developed a great physique, it's a very understandable fear to have, uh, especially if you have this information, you know where you've been, you don't want to get back there. And this is probably a stumbling block preventing you from actually running a, a, like a proper mass gaining cycle. And you're like, well, I, I don't want to, de I have all these fat cells. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm going to try lean gain. I'm going to try intermittent fasting. I'm going to try just being in a very small surplus, all, all these things. Um, and that's a very understandable response, but I think sometimes it's very useful to ask yourself, what's the worst that could happen? 
So let's say you do take a more aggressive bulking approach, right? And you try to gain, you know, two pounds a month for a while. Uh, and you find after, let's say, four months, you put on eight pounds and most of it looks like body fat. Well, now you've learned something. And that's only eight pounds of body fat. That's not probably the 50 plus you've lost. And that's easy to strip off. Um, you can you can do that probably in a six-week mini cut quite easily. Um, maybe even shorter than that, depending on how easily you find you lose fat. And then you learn something. And it's a really valuable lesson. Now you know that it's either too fast uh, or maybe your, your training needs to be a little more aggressive when you're in that big of a calorie surplus or, or both. Uh, and you could try gaining one pound a month and seeing if you can up your volume a little bit with additional food because you're probably kind of riding the borderline of maintenance right now. If I had to guess, that may not be the true. That may not be, be the case. Um, so I would give it a go and see what happens because we truly don't know what's going on with your individual fat cells. Um, sure, you might be have a little more predilection to, to gain body fat, but there's people out there who haven't even lost uh, a ton of weight who have it even worse. There's someone out there who has worse genetics for, for, for nutrient partitioning who's going to gain more fat when they're in a surplus who wasn't even obese previously. And uh, I think it's useful just to know that you don't really know what's going on internally with you. You know where you've been and you know where you're going to go and you can learn from that. Um, and I think, yeah, cool sculpt or chill sculpt, I've heard it a few different times. It's basically for anyone listening uh, and for you, it's, it's the idea of applying a level of coldness to tissue uh, that is not enough to damage the underlying muscle or the skin, uh, but that is actually thought to create fat cell death. Um, and I have seen, not enough research that I'm comfortable recommending this to anyone. Uh, it is out there. I think in some countries it's proved to be safe. So it's probably not, not going to harm you if it's done by someone who's registered to do it. Um, but it's costs like a couple grand for, for a session uh, and to, to hopefully locally just have localized effects on fat cells. And it's something that um, I would hate to see you drop three grand and like every three months go in for these, you know, hour long sessions and then look up one day and be like, did it make a difference? I can't tell, you know, um, when you could just try to put on some mass, see what happens. And if you gain, gain the body fat too quickly, you change your strategy. So I, I would say this is an opportunity to, uh, to, to ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen. And then when you, I think when you realize that it, it's not so bad and that you're, you're not going to go back to where you were, uh, then you can start to develop some individualized strategies based on trial and error, which is really all this game is at a certain point. No, exactly. And no, really well answered again. And I've always, I don't know why I've always thought of, um, I think a lot of people have thought that body fat cells are, once you've got them, you've got them. So it's really nice to hear that because I'd always thought of them as like a, a shadow, like you're always, it's always following you, these body fat cells. And um, people talk about taking their mass like too far, like they get into that um, dirty bulking area and they get yeah, way overweight and then it's like well maybe these fat cells don't hang around you can't be conclusive on that that's kind of a bit of a refreshing thought but um, also just the takeaway I think it's similar to like people who obsess about whether they have good genetics bad genetics whereas it's just embrace the process see what happens you can only do what you can do um, it's not worth thinking about these other things that you don't even know if they're holding you back or not um, just go mm. Yeah, and you like like to be clear. I I haven't seen any good contradictory evidence that says, oh, you can lose fat cells. It's just that we don't have great data looking at like someone who used to be obese and has been lean for ten years. What happens? We don't have that data, so uh, I, I don't know. And I think exactly like you said. More importantly, it's just things that uh, if you can't change them, um, I understand this person's actually looking for a, a proposed modality that could change it. Um, but I think it's even if you were to get a localized effect, because these are like little handles that you put on someone, like they fit on the love handles, you put them on the inner thigh or the, the buttocks. Um, those fat cells, if you were, were obese and if you did gain them, they're everywhere. So you, you would need to be like in some kind of like cryo chamber. And I really don't recommend that because that would be like lower your core temperature and be a problem. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's more of an issue of, hey, you can't really do much about it. So let, let's actually see what happens. And then for anyone who's worrying about fat cell gain, who's just had like a dirty bulk gone too far, that's not the same thing as blowing up and being, you know, obese for, for 10 years or something like that. I think that's, that's when you really start to see uh, large levels of fat cells to the point where it could potentially be a problem is when it's not just 
you know, a, a physique enthusiast who, who, who got a little too big on, on, on his bulk. That, that didn't change you for life. And if you ever want proof of this, just look at Alberto Nunez. This guy got himself to 240, 250 pounds back in the day when we were all following like the, uh, the drug user's advice, even though we were natural. And this guy competes at 5'9", a couple pounds over 160 at his biggest. Um, and so that means he, he literally, and, and he, obviously you can carry more lean body mass when you're high at a higher body fat. So it's not like he was 90 pounds of fat overweight, but he was carrying, uh, 60 pounds more than he should ever need to essentially. Um, and I, it hasn't prevented him from being known as one of the leanest people on the planet. So, uh, I think that's just kind of something to, uh, to, to, to kind of take, take as a take home message that it's definitely not a death sentence. I think you've given all the audience another reason to hate Alberto Nunez. <laughs> the fact that he's actually, I forget that he got that heavy and that big. That's, I can't even believe he's been over 200 pounds. That is unbelievable actually, but to be yeah. that far over. <laughs> yeah, he, he was eating, it was like a full-time job for him and <laughs> completely, completely unnecessary. So yeah. actually, that's a good, good point because he has to eat a lot even to maintain his current weight. So to think how he had to push calories, he must have not even he must have just been eating all the all the food. Oh man, when you hear when you hear the stories of what he has to do, it's 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 literally disgusting how much he <laughs> had to eat. Man, okay, so I think we have time at least for one more question, and I believe you know Russell Taylor, um, or at least mm-hmm. you've interacted with him before. Or actually, you yeah. met in person, haven't you? So, um, I'll have you. I don't know if he was at, at the UK conference, but I've, I've definitely interacted with Russell a fair bit online. What's think, up, man? I think it was at Body Power. Um, you went, you did the Body Power, didn't you? The year? Oh, did you not do that one? No, I was. I wasn't at Epic, so it, it, I, I don't think I met him that time. I don't think. Yeah, if I recall correctly, Russell hasn't been to the any of the SPS ones, which is all the times I've been brought out to the UK. So and now we're calling Russell out to get his himself there. <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't you spending money and, and, and going to these these conferences? There, <laughs> it's because he can ask you on my podcast. I've completely screwed this. That's over. right. I've, I've screwed That's right. completely. <laughs> we've 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 reinforced his bad behavior. That's what we've done. That's um, right. So now we're going to skip his question and no, okay. So we'll come to his question. Um, he says. It seems relevant today that I assume something happened fairly recently saying, uh, can you ask Eric about the science behind carb cycling and the myths associated with carb cycling? Fairly broad, um, too broad, or are you happy to kind of delve into that? I'm always happy to kick around around with, with carb cycling. Um, yeah, carb cycling has been, I don't know what exactly he's referring to with today. So I'm just yeah. going to answer the question with, with, uh, Maybe I'm going to go off on something, or he, I saw something that that that, uh, that he I haven't seen something that he has that's been in talk lately. But carb cycling comes in a lot of different forms. I see carb cycling proposed as different carb intakes on training and non-training days, with the you know theoretical rationale of carbohydrates are primarily there for exercise fuel, uh, and too much can be uh, bad. <laughs> kind of probably too generally is kind of the way people think of that, um, which I think is probably not a good way to think of it. Or, hey, during weight loss, you kind of have to switch it up and trick your metabolism so that you have high and low days to effectively lose fat um, because something about insulin and nutrient partitioning and metabolic adaptation, uh, blah, blah, blah. I don't really know what I'm saying, but you got to change it up because my coach said so. Um, and then I've also seen it in the form of refeeds. Um, and then I've also seen those things combined. So I've seen people who have, uh, refeeds and, and training day carbohydrate intakes in the same week. And then if the refeed falls on a non-training day, it's a lower refeed falls on a higher training day. It's a higher refeed. Um, so it, you know, it it can play out to being four different intakes, like uh, a low day, uh, a low day on a training day, which is a slightly higher day, a refeed day on a non-training day, which is slightly higher than that, or then the refeed day on a training day, which is the highest. Um, and everything in between. I've also seen people who do um, basically at maintenance or uh, on training days and then a large deficit on off days. I think Menno Henselman's does stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, not always. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Um, maybe always. Um, and largely, I think it's much ado about nothing, in my opinion, not to just like all these people do this and they're all idiots. I'm not saying that. It's just that these are reasonable hypotheses, but I think they don't take into account a number of things. A, even doing a high volume bodybuilding program, you're not burning as many calories as you think. 
And for that, let's say two hours, that's a long bodybuilding workout in my opinion. And I don't mean two hours because you did a leg day, you're really tired, and then you started looking at Instagram or talking to your buddy. I mean like you actually just had to rest a while and you started again. Longer than two hours, it just means you like if you're doing longer than two hours and you're actually focused on your training, you're either in terrible shape and you need to do some conditioning work or you're just doing too much. Right. So let's say two hours is the longest bodybuilding workout that should be there. Not a powerlifting workout for those who are lifting. Those can take forever because you're doing high, high fatigue movements. But a bodybuilding workout at most can be training 10 hours a week. Right. So individual sessions, two hours during those two hours. If you weren't in the gym, you'd be doing something else burning calories. So it's not like just an additional 600 calories burned. It's maybe an additional like 300 if you if you weren't doing anything or if you went grocery shopping probably only an additional like 150 you know uh because your rest period you're taking it more time than lifting and it's really not that 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 much in terms of energy expenditure and we have data showing that especially when you're dieting and losing weight your your neat and your your eat inter interact so your exercise and your non-exercise activity thermogenesis regulate to some degree and more in some people and less in others so that means that some people, when on days they train, they're less active for the rest of the day and their energy expenditure stays relatively static or at least net over the week it does. And since we don't actually know how many calories we're burning, because even activity trackers are not that good these days, um, it's, it's guessing. And you could be like if you went on a hike uh, and then if you like walk to the grocery store, you probably burn more than you did on your training day where you didn't do that. So you could be totally wrong anyway. So I'm not a huge fan for bodybuilders, for athletes, different story because there's much higher energy expenditures going on. For bodybuilders having different calories on training days and, and off days, I don't think that's, that's, that's necessary. You can if you want, but I just don't see the necessity of it or the benefit. Um, and that's calories. And if you're doing it with carbs, I think it's another level of minutia that probably doesn't matter. Like, yes, lifting depends on stored glycogen, but not necessarily just glucose availability. Um, and when you're like, it may make a difference in terms of how you feel. I mean, hell, mouth, mouth rinsing can sometimes make a difference in how you feel with carbohydrate. Uh, you probably want to go into your workouts fed while you're dieting just to make sure that's, that's sorted. But I don't think you need to like maximize your carbohydrate around training unless you actually have individual data showing that helps you. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a huge fan of manipulating carbohydrates or calories unless you're dealing with very low intakes or very high expenditures and you have to uh, in general for, for, for bodybuilders. I just think it's not necessary. It's probably not harmful. And like I said, there could be cases where, where it might be needed, but typically in other types of athletes or in people who have to get their calories very low um, to where it could be uh, just so low that you do feel it or it makes a difference. Um, the refeeds I do think makes sense that that's the one kind of carb cycling. I would say we have some decent data on them being theoretically beneficial. And I have a ton of anecdotal experience, um, well-tracked, systematically tracked experience that, that, that seems like it really does make a difference. Um, whether that's just due to, uh, adherence and satiety, having kind of that light at the end of the tunnel each week, uh, glycogen replenishment, um, you know, digestive health because if you've ever been on a prep sometimes you, you just can't take a shit until that refeed comes <laughs> you know you try to up your fiber you have your greens you know whatever and it's just like you know it's one of those things that happens while dieting and you get out of a deficit you feed the gut all those carbohydrates and things start to move along and that that's that's nice you know um stress levels come down cortisol levels come down i think there, there's a lot of things that happen from from just not being in a deficit and actually getting to eat uh, which, which are beneficial. You're going to have probably a better training session, maybe that day or the next day, um, uh, as glycogen gets stored. So it's, it's at least hitting pause on muscle loss, performance loss. Um, and we have some data when you're doing multiple days in a row, uh, that the refeeds can reset some, some hormonal things that we don't want happening. Specifically in women, we've seen 48 hour refeeds at roughly maintenance can reverse that, that slide towards amenorrhea, the loss of a menstrual cycle. And I would not be surprised if there were similar parallels in men, um, as there is a, obviously hormonal, hormonal adaptation to dieting in men. Testosterone can reach damn near castrate levels after a hard prep. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in studies where they've done three-day refeeds, you see small upticks in, in, in leptin and things like that. They're transient. They don't stay there, but it's something. Um, and it certainly doesn't, like, offset how much you had to, to, to increase calories. Um, but it's more a question of, of logistics these days because 
and when I'm talking about refeeds, like we have to get so lean to be competitive in bodybuilding that it, it requires these longer preps. Like you almost never see someone who can pull off anything less than a, than a 20 week prep these days for, for competitive bodybuilding uh, in, in drug tested. Right. Um, so if you know you're going to be at it that long and then you, then you need to make sure you preserve as much muscle and preserve as much sanity so you can have an effective off season, you can transition. So it kind of necessitates these longer preps. And some of the reason longer preps are happening uh, and even really longer preps when you look at some people is because they're doing diet breaks, because they're doing refeeds, because they're doing multiple shows and each time they're doing a peak week that's basically a few days at least off from, from being in a deficit. And all that has to kind of extend the diet. And the vast majority of people who've been shredded uh, would prefer to extend it out, do it longer versus cut really, really hard. Uh, and they also find better, better muscle retention. There's a very close link to rate of weight loss uh, and how much muscle mass is lost. Uh, you can make an argument with like a weight class restricted strength athlete that you could diet really hard and fast. Uh, and then if you're before your show, like bring calories up and regain it and, or before your meat, I should say, regain it and then do it. Um, but for a bodybuilder, it's not just getting to a weight class cutoff. It's getting to as lean as physically possible. And that's when you need to compete in that state. And you can only reverse so much of that by bringing food up. So you really do care about at the end of the diet, when I'm shredded, how much lean body mass do I have? Because eating up into a show will only reverse some of that. And you can only eat up so much before you start gaining body fat back. So it's this kind of catch-22. Uh, so that's why I think refeeds are, in some, ma some, some way, you should have a nonlinear approach to your diet, whereby you're coming out of that deficit to, to, for, for recovery and fatigue management purposes and all the other things I talked about. Whether that is just diet breaks or that's refeeds and diet breaks, or that's just extended refeeds. I think all of those can work. We have more good data at this stage around diet breaks than we do refeeds. So there's definitely not only a, a total magnitude of food, but a time component. So um, so that's that's the closest thing to uh, carb cycling that I think makes sense mm -hmm. for, for bodybuilders especially would be having uh, what I would recommend is probably like two days in a row per week where you're, where you're not uh, dieting or every two weeks or something like that. I think the specifics are going to be debated by based on personal experience because we don't have data on that. Yeah. Uh, what I typically do is have a 48-hour refeed every week. So there's five dieting days, two high days, and then every four to eight weeks, uh, we take a, a week of maintenance. Mm -hmm. No, that's really interesting. I, I can only really speak from personal experience in that my last prep, I didn't so much use the refeeds, but definitely use diet breaks kind of every single mm -hmm. Um, even every kind of fifth week, I ended up doing like a week. Nice. So I kind of just saved up all the potential refeeds, I the refeeds. Doing yeah. and used them in that diet break. And, and that worked really well. Whether or not diet, uh, refeeds along with that would have helped um, potentially um, might be something that I trial in future. But uh, I think the point of which, apart from the refeed scenario in which people who are meticulously kind of trying to match their daily energy expenditure to their kind of calorie intake, it's kind of like just fuck around itis i think uh, martin Burkham yes. would have called it and um it's actually really interesting and i'm glad you brought it up and i just wanted to touch on it because i know my client will be listening to this um who you talked about kind of the fact that as you exercise kind of that might regulate your neat levels anyway so you end up burning a similar number of calories um he's currently in a situation where he's kind of had a high step count for a long period of time and is in a gaining phase and eating quite a lot and it's like do you really need he's should i bring these down and it's kind of causing a bit of anxiety potentially but he doesn't want to gain too much weight he kind of thinks should he bring his calories down i'm kind of encouraging try transitioning them down slowly we probably won't see much difference happening there so i'm glad you brought that up is there anything you've kind of experienced you ever use kind of step counts and then monitoring weight loss and have, whether you have to change nutrition much to kind of compensate for that yeah, so step counts typically do decrease when you start dieting someone, uh, unless they're actively trying to maintain a certain step count. We, we played with that a little bit. Berto looked at that for a while with some clients, but it does open up a new avenue for potential neuroses <laughs> um, because now it's every time you're moving, you're thinking about fat loss, you know, um, and that is not good. <laughs> like that's actually most people's first prep experience is all they can think about is the prep. And most people's first prep experience is a bad experience or at least worse than it has to be. 
you know it's fun to think about bodybuilding all the time yeah bad and same here um it's fun to think about bodybuilding all all the time but when you were also starving and also doing all this stuff and and obsessive and can't really not think about it and it takes over your life as it is so want to do when you're new and excited with the sport and dieting and have all those side effects happening uh it's not a good combination so i'm not sure that i like in novice competitors, especially the idea of tracking step counts, because it's one more thing to uh, obsess over. Um, certain personalities, more experienced competitors, sure, because the largest adaptive component to dieting is neat. So that's a way to try to offset that to some degree. Um, but I do think it's 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 limited uh, to some degree. And you know, there's some there's some really crazy research out there. Uh, that, that is outside of exercise science that's looking at the constrained model of energy expenditure. And I don't know how relevant it is to a contest prep dieter. In fact, probably not that relative, uh, relevant, I should say. Uh, but if anyone hasn't listened to it, I, I Google Sigma Nutrition Constrained Model of Energy Expenditure. It's a really good interview with a, uh, I would say he's a, I think he's an anthropologist. Um, but he was looking at hunter-gatherers hunter-gatherer society, so still living uh, basically the way we did uh, in, in, in like European societies got hundreds, hundreds if not a thousand years ago, um, pre-agricultural. And so they have massively high energy, or I should say activity levels, but their energy expenditure levels aren't that much different than ours which is crazy because that means something else has to be compensating down. That means they might have that crazy step count from being out there literally gathering and hunting and cleaning things and having to get water because just surviving is a constant daily task. Uh, But their total energy output, not that much higher at the population level, which is crazy. And this is probably, now this is population-wide data looking at like lifespan and large periods of time. I would think like during shorter periods, like a contest prepper within a week, Obviously, you know, if someone runs a marathon, they're going to burn more calories than they didn't. I'm not saying it's happening on a day. Uh, but I think the way this plays out that I've seen in contest prep or what I think is, is the explanation for it is that cardio seems effective to a point. But then it starts not being effective after that. And it's never quite made sense. And the only thing that it could be is that other things are compensating downward. And I, I almost feel, I think almost every coach I've talked to has, has nodded their head when I've said that. Like, yeah, I've tried the whole do a ton of cardio, especially for people with a low energy intake who are sedentary, who are women, you know, like, oh, I don't want to put them on, you know, under a thousand calories. This is crazy. I'm going to give them, you know, an hour of cardio a day. And you're like, hold on, an hour of cardio a day, even at her body weight, that should be like four calories a minute. What, what, what's going on? That's that's an additional 1,500 calories of energy expenditure a week. Why isn't she losing weight? Or why isn't she losing weight at the speed I expect? And um, really the only answer, if it's not you know poor adherence, and sometimes we just know that's not the case. Sometimes it could be. Um, but when you work with certain athletes and you have a certain level of feedback and it's just not in their best interest to be dishonest with you and you've created an environment of openness and you're both sitting there trying to fix the same problem, uh, sometimes I think that's probably not what's going on. So the only thing left is that there is some uh, adaptive component in other aspects of energy expenditure decreasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and until now, we don't really have good empirical data on that except for the uh, epidemiological stuff on hunter-gatherers, which isn't perfectly relevant, like I said, but at least shows that that is a possible thing the body can do, which is really interesting. So um, I, I would say to get kind of circle back to answer the question, um, don't get too crazy with step counts because even neat activity is not what that what was going on in that, in that, in that model of uh, study. It wasn't all exercise activities, daily life activity and exercise activity, and it still didn't quite account for everything. So it's happening globally. Um, there's a lot of probably different systems that are changing. Um, and I think focusing too much on one, trying to keep a very, very high step count when you're really, really fatigued and maybe you just can't get your energy expenditure that high uh, in the first place might be just kind of a painful thing to do. I know I get so lethargic during prep sometimes. The last thing I want to do is try to get another 5,000 steps in. Uh, And sometimes the only answer is just to cut calories a little more if you're not losing at the right pace. Or take a diet break. Like we said, sometimes the answer is to try to uh, turn the volume down on all these adaptations to dieting and then, you know, wipe the the slate as clean as you can when you're, you know, like 8% body fat trying to get to five, which is not that clean. And still, you're going to have more struggle as you go. But, you know, take a week off dieting, come back into it and see if you can lose on those same calories with that same energy expenditure. And oftentimes you'll find you get another couple of weeks uh, of progress out 
uh, before you stall again. And I'd say that's probably a better strategy than, than like trying to be a zombie who's walking 10,000 steps a day and doing cardio and lifting, you know, and eating very, very little food. Yeah, I think it's, I've, I've used, I do use it with a lot of clients and there's some people it's worked really well with other people. It's actually created that anxiety and we have to remove it. Um, Mm. and it's just, it, and it's just fascinating to hear you talk about it because even, and people will be able to know this, like if you do a thousand steps when you're kind of in a calorie surplus versus a thousand steps when you're in a deficit, you're going to burn different amounts, even if you're the same body weight and everything, because one of them, you've got a springier step probably, and you're going to be doing this. And the other one, you're like dragging your heels and you're like an old person walking along. So, um, no, fantastic points. And, um, it's kind of, in many ways, a lot of these things are almost, they make, they make everything a lot simpler, but it's kind of a mm. bit of a pain. Like you want these hacks, you want these things yeah. to try and kind of break free. And I like step counts for pe- making people aware that this happens, um, but then really taking it to the degree of pushing steps higher and higher and higher. Yeah, I mean, you take longer to do those steps. Like are you burning maybe an extra f- five calories or something per 10 minutes or something completely trivial and not useful and it's creating that anxiety maybe you should have been sleeping then you could train harder it's all these feedback loops um so yeah fascinating stuff and um i think we've come to a good point to close um we still have tons of great questions but um i just want to say first of all like fantastic like it was absolutely joy speaking to you and hearing your your answers to the questions and i've learned a ton and i'm sure the audience have as well um i think you bring out stuff that and, and a different perspective to some of the questions that other people might not think about so no i really really interesting so it's great eric my absolute pleasure thanks for having me i look forward to doing it more awesome yeah well we've already kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit and that'll be brilliant and i'm glad um, that the audience can look forward to more of these and like always like with uh, the Q and A's with Mike, if you do want to ask questions, we just ask that you join the free Facebook group, um, and you can post in there and get your questions answered on the podcast. So thank you very much guys for listening. And, uh, if people want to find out more about you, Eric, best places to head over to your YouTube channel or the vault. I know that you've been doing a lot of work there as well. I think 3dmusclejourney.com is probably the best landing pad because right there you can see where the vault is, the link to our YouTube channel, the link if you want to subscribe to monthly applications and strength sport if you really want to nerd out, or the muscle and strength pyramids like you mentioned if you want to get uh, training manuals and nutrition manuals. Uh, and then the only thing that's not directly linked on like the main page of 3dmusclejourney.com would be my Instagram, which is at Helms3DMJ, which I'm sure you'll see tagged in this post eventually anyway. So yeah. and uh, I'll just make sure that that's going to be linked every single time for you guys um, so you can find that stuff and uh, yeah thank you all for listening and uh, we'll talk to you soon